באותו יום ניגשו אליו צדוקים האומרים שאין תחיית מתים ושאלו אותו רבי, משה אמר איש אם ימות ובנים אין לו ייקח אחיו את אשתו ויקים זרע לאחיו ובכן היו עמנו שבעה אחים הראשון התחתן ומת וכיוון שלא היו לו ילדים השאיר את אשתו לאחיו כך גם השני והשלישי עד השביעי ואחרי כולם מתה האישה אם כן למי מהשבעה תהיה לאישה בתחיית המתים שהרי הייתה שייכת לכולם השיב להם ישוע ואמר אתם טועים משום שאינכם יודעים את הכתובים אף לא את גבורת האלוהים בתחייה אין האנשים מתחתנים אלא שהם כמלאכי השמיים ואשר לתחיית המתים האם לא קראתם מה שנאמר לכם מפי אלוהים? אנוכי אלוהי אברהם, אלוהי יצחק ואלוהי יעקב. אין הוא אלוהי המתים, כי אם אלוהי החיים. שמעו זאת ההמונים והשתוממו על תורתו. כאשר שמעו הפרושים כי השתיק את הצדוקים, נאספו יחדיו, ואחד מבעלי התורה שביניהם שאל אותו כדי לנסותו. רבי, איזו היא המצווה הגדולה שבתורה? השיב לו ישוע, ואהבת את אדוני אלוהיך, בכל לבבך ובכל נפשך ובכל מאודיך. זאת המצווה הגדולה והראשונה. השנייה דומה לה, ואהבת לרעך כמוך. בשתי מצוות אלה תלויה כל התורה והנביאים. כשנקהלו הפרושים שאל אותם ישוע, מה דעתכם על המשיח? בן מי הוא? השיבו לו, בן דוד. אמר להם, אם כן כיצד, בהשראת הרוח, קורא לו דוד, אדון, באמרו, נאום אדוני לאדוני, שב לימיני עד אשית אויביך הדום לרגליך. ובכן, אם דוד קורא לו אדון, כיצד הוא בנו? אף אחד לא היה יכול לענות לו דבר, ומאותו יום גם לא העז איש להוסיף לשאול אותו. בשורת ישוע המשיח מפי מתתיהו פרק 22, פסוקים 23 עד 46 That same day some tzdukim came to him. They are the ones who say there is no such thing as resurrection, so they put to him a she'ela, a question. Rabbi, Moshe said if a man dies childless, his brother must marry his widow and have children to preserve the man's family line. There were seven brothers. The first one married and then died. And since he had no children, he left his widow to his brother. The same thing happened to the second brother and the third and finally to all seven. After them all, the woman died. Now in the resurrection, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all married her. Yeshua answered them, The reason you go astray is that you are ignorant both of the Tanakh and of the power of God. For in the resurrection neither men nor women will marry, rather they will be like the angels in heaven. And as for whether the dead are resurrected, haven't you read what God said to you? I am the God of Avraham, the God of Yitzchak, and the God of Yaakov. He is God not of the dead but of the living. When the crowds heard how he taught, they were astounded. But when the Purushim learned that he had silenced the Tzdukim, they got together, and one of them who was a Torah expert asked a She'elah to trap him. Rabbi, which of the mitzvot in the Torah is the most important? 
He told him, You are to love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the greatest and most important mitzvah. And a second is similar to it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the Torah and the prophets are dependent on these two mitzvot. Then, turning to the assembled Purushim, Yeshua put a she'elah to them. Tell me your view concerning the Messiah. Whose son is he? They said to him, David's. Then how is it, he asked them, that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord when he says, Adonai said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one could think of anything to say in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to put him to another she'elah. The Good News of Yeshua the Messiah according to Matityahu, chapter 22, verses 23 to 46. Shalom Alechem, Uvruchim Hashavim, peace be upon you and welcome back. Your humble servant returns to you in humility, and he is most fortunate to present to you yet another astoundingly enlightening and biblically earth shaking episode 12 of. Finding Higher Ground. Coming straight at you from deep within the heart of Seattle, Washington, USA, it's none other than the Manic Messianic and your host, Gotti Higher. I'd like to give a few thank yous before I get into the actual content of episode 12. So would you please give a round of mental applause to everyone involved. Audacity and Spotify and Anchor and Epidemic Sound. I tip my hat to you and I thank you all for helping me create my podcast channel. A very special thank you goes to Anchor for sponsoring my podcast. Thank you very much. Another very special thank you goes to oneforisrael.org. 
the spearhead ministry leading the way into bringing Israeli Jews, Israeli Arabs, and Palestinians to a deeper knowledge of Messiah Yeshua. Thank you very much for letting me share your book, Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus. This book has been put together by Drs. Seth D. Postel, Dr. Eitan Bar, and Dr. Erez Sorif. Thank you very much, respectively. How are you doing, dear listeners? How have you been? I do hope and pray that Abba has been most gracious unto you in the time that has passed between episodes 11 and 12. I thank you wholeheartedly for sticking it out with me and being patient with me and um, just being there and listening to me. Thank you very much. It means the world. These podcasts are not easy to make. They take a lot out of me, but it's a labor of love. I love doing it because I, I feel like I am inclined to share this with you. Messiah Yeshua is too beautiful to keep for myself. I am, I am being pressed to share this all with you. I do not usually ask for any kind of gifts, but if you'd like to um, support my podcast, then you can do that at the corresponding link that is posted on my Spotify episodes. So if you do ever feel inclined by Ruach HaKodesh and you are supportive of my mission to make the most famous Jewish person in all of history even more famous, please join me and support me. I do appreciate you and I ask Abba to bless you in advance. I have had a very enlightening time since my last podcast was made and it was published right before the Passover Seder of this year which led to, of course, Resurrection Sunday at my local congregation, which would be Epic Life Church here in North Seattle. You can actually check it out on YouTube, Epic Life Church on YouTube. You can find us in North Seattle. And ever since my pastor had shared with us this one amazing sermon dealing with deciding to live a Luke 24 victory life, I decided to take that challenge rather seriously because I want to live that kind of life. I want to live a Luke 24 victory life because the story doesn't get really interesting until Luke 24. If you really think about it, everything from Luke chapter 1 to Luke chapter 23 is perfectly fine and seems to be normal. It tells the story of a Jewish man who leads the entire environment around him uh, into a different paradigm shift school of thought. But then, in chapter 24 of Luke, that's when things get interesting. Chapter 23 deals with his death. That's totally sane too, it's completely normal. People live and people die. But then, in chapter... 24, he comes back to life, and that does not happen on an everyday basis. And that right there is the paradigm shift. That's what makes the story different than any other story. You should look into it. Dig deeper. My amazing pastor, who is very much blessed by Adonai Elohim, Mr. Keith Carpenter, has challenged us and me individually to live a Luke 24 victory life, and I am going to take that challenge. And ever since I have cognitively decided to take that challenge, I have noticed in my spiritual walk that I am being attacked by the adversary, where he makes me feel isolated and rejected and nobody loves me, wah, wah, wah. Call the ambulance. 
And I say call the ambulance because it's basically a pity party. I was throwing a pity party on myself. And that's what the adversary was doing. This pity party was coming from the adversary. The adversary wants me to feel all of this negative stuff. The adversary wants me to feel secluded and isolated and that nobody loves me, that nobody gives two poops about this podcast. There have been actual moments that I thought that I should give up. I have had moments where I thought that I should just stop. Ah, nobody's listening to me. I have nobody, nobody's listening to me. No one's following me anymore, so I should just stop. But no, see, that's it. Those are those negative thoughts are the adversary trying to make me quit. And I can't quit. I'm committed to him and I'm committed to you. It is my hope and prayer that somebody out there will listen to this and something will snap in them and make them go on a journey, make them go down some kind of a rabbit hole where they will voluntarily open up the Bible, uh, preferably the complete Jewish study Bible, and start studying it on their own and come to the same truths that I've, that I've come to and start trusting in the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, to guide you. All you gotta do is ask Him. All you have to do is ask Him. You are never too far away from turning back to Adonai, ever. Some of you listening to this might think, ah, I've done so much horrible stuff. There's no way in the world that this God of yours could ever forgive me for all the shitty things that I've done. Sorry, sorry for that word. For those with sensitive ears, oh no, he said the S word. Well, you know what? Um, I think that Messiah Yeshua has put up with a whole lot worse than me dropping an S-bomb. The point being is that no matter what you've done in your life, you are never ever too far away from God, Adonai Elohim, to turn back and, and just run to Him. He will always receive you, no matter what you've done. The Gospel of Messiah Yeshua is intended to real people it is directed to real people with real problems that suffer and hurt in everyday life. The people that have foul mouths and use foul coarse language. Messiah Yeshua died for those people too. So please, forgive me if I drop an S-bomb or an F-bomb every once in a while. I had a little uh, bit of a rough week this last week since I decided to live a, a Luke 24 victory life with my potty mouth. I've had to put up with atheists on Twitter. Yes, I'm on Twitter. You can find me. My uh, Twitter page is called Finding Higher Ground, and my handle is at Manic Messianic. Yes, I am on Twitter. It is a bunch of fun now that Elon Musk took that over. Thank you, Elon. I appreciate it. You've made Twitter fun again. Anyway, I digress. Yep. It's been a fun-filled week, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, my dear listeners. I've had to fend off I had to fight off atheists on Twitter, and I had to argue with my 89-year-old Jewish mom. I love you, mom, but you're so stubborn. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about that. That's a whole other thing. I do love you, mom, if you ever listen to this. I love you. You are stubborn, but I love you. My fighting off the atheists was rather entertaining, and I learned a lot. They simply could not repeat one question. I asked one simple question and they could not give me an honest answer. And the question that I asked this atheist was, if God does not exist, then why does he bother you so much? Because in order for something to bother you, it has to exist, right? So if God doesn't exist, then how can it bother you? 
Oh, you atheists of the world that have stumbled upon this podcast by some form of freak mishap, please respond. Answer to me this question. Riddle me this, atheist. If God doesn't exist, then how can he bother you? Why does my spreading love seem to be an act of aggression to you? Why does my faith bother you so much? And it's really funny because when you start talking to them about concepts like grace and unconditional love and all of this, they just lose their minds. They don't understand it. They can't comprehend it. There are two types of people in the world. There are one, The first type is the person who asks questions because they really want to learn something. And the second type of person is asking questions because they want to argue with you. Needless to say, of course, I am looking for those who ask me questions in order to learn something. I am asking Abba, my father in heaven, to teach me how to change the situation around to turn this person who asks questions to argue into a person who asks questions to learn something. Ooh, I really like that. Yes. Yes, Abba. Absolutely. Grant me the ability in the name of Messiah Yeshua, your son, the Shem Yeshua HaMashiach Bincha, grant me the ability to hopefully, in your spirit, turn a person from a from from a from a person who asks questions to argue into a person who asks questions to learn something. Please, please forgive my fumfering and my stammering because this is unscripted. I am completely uh, spilling from the heart right now. There are no footnotes to this. I am not re reading from anything. This is coming from straight from me. This is coming straight from the heart and from the soul. And these are the people that hopefully my podcasts are, are reaching and, and landing with. It's the real people out there that use that kind of a foul language mouth. Please do not assume for one second that I walk around with some form of a halo around my head or that the body of Messiah, the his believers, the people who call themselves believers in Messiah, walk around with some form of halo around their heads. We are nitty-gritty real people who use potty mouth language. Do you not think that Yeshua does not know this? Yeshua had to endure the cross, and he had to endure death for three days. He conquered it, but he had to endure it. So I think that he can handle a few F-bombs and S-bombs. What you'll never hear out of my mouth is GD and JC. I will never say those things. But I will try to keep it clean in here, but it might very be very well be possible that I might slip. I might let slip an S-bomb or an F-bomb every once in a while. So if you are easily offended by this, um, uh, I don't know what to say to that. I am not trying to be vulgar and gross. I am trying to make an emphasis, and I speak street lingo and, you know, real language. Certainly don't walk around speaking Shakespearean English all the time. Anyway, my rant is over, and we will continue with Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus, Chapter 2. So in Chapter 1 of uh, Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus, we touched on the uh, whole topic of the Torah anticipates law-breaking through New Testament eyes basically uh, touches the point where you can't really understand the scripture through the New Testament. Uh, you can, but you really get a fuller, a fuller, much richer understanding of the New Testament through the Old Testament. 
So while you can approach the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective, it's really more appropriate and uh, truer to approach the New Testament from an Old Testament perspective, and that's exactly the point that Yeshua was trying to make. The gist of chapter 1, uh, the Torah anticipates lawbreaking dealt with the deeds of the fathers are a sign of the sons. Dealing with lexical parallel parallels and shared plot themat thematic parallels dealing with Ma'asei Avot Siman Labanim, which in short deals with what the forefathers have done was assigned to the generations to follow, and a warning and even dare say prophecy that they would that they were going to break the Torah. Then it touches on Adam and Eve from Adam and Eve to Israel, uh, and it shows the parallels between Adam and Eve and how they um, got exiled into the east and Israel also gets exiled into the east by not listening and obeying to God. So we find uh, thematic parallels within the Adam and Eve story and how that mirrors and reflects what happens to Israel and generations later. After that, chapter 1 deals with the end echoes the beginning. When we look at the conclusion of the Torah, we see exactly the same perspective that we find in the introduction. Moses does not expect Israel to keep the law, rather he predicts Israel will break the law and go into exile. That goes into all of that in great detail. So here we go, we're going to go into chapter 2, Failure of Faith Leads to Death. Buckle up lady, we're going for a ride! Abba, I would like to take this moment in time to thank you for allowing me to share your word, Dvar Adonai, with my listeners at this moment. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. If the goal of the Torah is the law, why does Moses strategically highlight Israel's unbelief and death after the giving of the law? The Apostle Paul writes, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And that's Romans chapter 4 verse 15. But it's also the English Standard Version, which I'm not entirely crazy about. So just for fun and games, I'm going to read it from the complete Jewish study Bible, like I always do. For what the law brings is punishment, but where there is no law, there is no violation. That's the complete Jewish Bible. In 2 Corinthians 3 verses 6 to 7, he calls the Sinai Covenant a ministry of death. Ooh, I gotta look that up. Hold on. Allow me to read it to you from the complete Jewish study Bible. Okay, we're at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. He has even made us competent to be workers, serving a new covenant, the essence of which is not a written text, but the Spirit. For the written text brings death, but the Spirit gives life. Now if that which worked death by means of a written text engraved on stone tablets came with glory, such glory that the people of Israel could not stand to look at Moshe's face because of its brightness, even though that brightness was already fading away, won't the working of the Spirit be accompanied by even greater glory? Alright, so I trickled into verse 8 there, but that's what the complete Jewish study Bible says. And that was once again 2 Corinthians 3, 6-7, and I threw an 8 for good measure. Alright, so he calls 2 Corinthians 3, 6, 7, he calls the Sinai Covenant a ministry of death. In Romans 10, 3, 8, Paul speaks of the righteousness based on the law, which is opposed to a righteousness based on faith. How can Paul make such statements? The answer is straightforward, by meditating on the Torah. 
The solution to understanding Paul's use of the Torah is to begin with a close reading of the Torah itself. Often believers think that they can understand the Tanakh, i.e. the Hebrew scriptures, only through the New Testament writings. We believe this equation should be reversed. Only when we have given careful attention to the meaning of the Tanakh can we understand the New Testament writings. So this basically uh, expands on the whole exegesis thing that episode, or I'm sorry, chapter one of Reading Moses Seeing talks about. And exegesis meaning to keep the, the uh, context of the Bible, um, to keep the Bible in the context that which it was written and which the authors had initially intended. Meaning it's not up to, to any kind of interpretation other than the way the authors of the Bible intended it to be read and understood. As we now look at the story of the giving of the law, Exodus 19.1, all the way to Numbers 10.10, 10, it, in its larger literary context, we will point out two quite surprising details in the text. First, Israel's experience with God at Mount Sinai does not achieve its stated purpose, namely, a response of faith. Second, Israel's transgression after the law is given results in death. Trying to get our arms around a book the size of the Torah is not a simple task. It is helpful to think of the Torah as one very big narrative, from the creation of the universe to Moses' death on Har Nevo, Mount Nebo, comprised of six major time periods or narrative sections. There is a footnote, number one, right after the word sections. We're going to get into that in a second. Actually, we'll do it right now. So footnote number one, our division of the Torah into larger narrative sections is generally recognized and based on tangible features in the literary structure of the Torah. Okay, that's footnote number one. So let's go, let's go over these comprised, these, uh, let's go over these six major time periods or narrative sections of the Torah. Uh, section number one is the primeval history, Genesis 1 to 11. Number two is the patriarchal narrative, Genesis 12 to 50. Three is the Exodus narrative, Exodus 1-1 to Exodus 15-21. Then we have number four, the wilderness narrative, 2, Exodus 15-22, all the way to 18-27. And then from Mount Sinai, which is Numbers 10-11, all the way to 36-13. And then we have a footnote, Second footnote at Mount Sinai. So the second footnote reads, Though the wilderness narratives to and from Mount Sinai represent, in one sense, two different narrative sections, their role as a literary framework for the Sinai narrative compels us to consider their purpose as a unity. Alright, that was footnote number two. Let's continue. The fifth major time period or, narr or narrative section is the Sinai narrative from Exodus 19.1 all the way through Numbers 10.10. And then number six, the last one, would be Moses' exposition of the Torah in the land of Moab, which would be Deuteronomy 1-34. to Righteous faith and faithful grumbling. When we read through the Torah, we see that faith though not mentioned frequently, is mentioned strategically in terms of the structure of the Torah as a whole. Then we have footnote number three, which is John H. Sailhammer, Pentateuch as Narrative, Grand Rapids, Zondervan, 1992, 59-62. So there's your homework. 
you can find that book on your own and you can read all of that. So let's read that again. When we read through the Torah, we see that faith, though not mentioned frequently, is mentioned strategically in terms of the structure of the Torah as a whole. In all but the first narrative section, Genesis 1.11, the phrase to believe appears at key moments in the plot of the story. Footnote number four, which is, though faith is not mentioned in the primal primeval narrative, Genesis 1.11, Moses does highlight the fact that Enoch and Noah walked with God, Genesis 5.22-24, and then 6.9. This faith walk is later used used to describe the life of Abraham, Genesis 13.17, 17.1, and 24.40. Enoch and Noah's walk with God rescues them from death, though only temporarily in Noah's case, and provides an occasion to highlight Noah's righteousness, Genesis 6-9. And that was footnote number four. Those key moments that the phrase to believe appears tell us a great deal. In arguably the single most important part of the patriarchal narrative, the making of the Abrahamic covenant, we find the famous verse about Abraham's faith, Genesis 15-6, sandwiched between God's promise of a seed, Genesis 15, 1-5, and of the land, Genesis 15, 7-18, and he believed the Lord, Adonai, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That should sound familiar to some of you. The following section, the Exodus narrative, Exodus 1, 1-15, begins and ends with Israel's faith. When Moses and Aaron first assembled the elders and sons of Israel in Egypt to reveal God's plan, we are told that the people believed, Exodus 4, 31, and bowed their heads and worshipped. Likewise, at the end of the Exodus narrative and before the whole assembly sings their song of praise, Exodus 15, we see that the people's reaction to the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea is faith. Israel saw the great power that the Lord Adonai used against the Egyptians, so the people feared Adonai and they believed in Adonai and his servant Moses. Exodus 14:31. That was Gaudi's English Standard Version because I added Adonai in there on my own. It is worth making a few comments about the next narrative section, the wilderness narrative to Mount Sinai, Exodus 15:22, all the way to 18:27 though we will return to this section later to compare it with Israel's journey away from Mount Sinai. Here we see how Israel's experiences with God and Egypt fail to make a lasting impression. After God reveals his miraculous powers over the waters of the Red Sea, Israel faithlessly complains about a lack of water. Exodus 15, 22-27 Though Israel's complaining continues unabated until they reach Mount Sinai, Exodus 15, 24, Exodus 16, 2, 7 and 8, Exodus 17, 3, God patiently and graciously leads them victoriously past the Amalekites into his thunderous presence. Faith is surprisingly absent in the section, however. Footnote number 5. Footnote number 5. The absence of the faith theme in the wilderness narrative to Sinai, Exodus 15:22 to 1827 appears to be strategic since it raises a question in the mind of the reader. Where is an expression of faith? What we find instead is complaining and plenty of it. Exodus 15:24, Exodus 16:2, 7-8, Exodus 17:3. That's footnote number 5. 
The next reference to faith is found in the introduction to the fifth and largest narrative section in the Torah, the Sinai narrative, Exodus 19.1 all the way through to Numbers 10.10. The moment has come for the law to be given. The Lord will appear to the people in a new and dramatic way. And now we see that faith is the response God himself desires from Israel when they encounter him on the mountain. And the Lord Adonai said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe you forever. Exodus 19.9 Footnote number 6 Footnote number 6 reads, Though this passage specifically refers to believing in Moses, the larger context makes clear that Israel demonstrated faith in God by believing and obeying what Moses said about God. See Exodus 4.1 Exodus 9, Exodus 31, especially 14.31. Here, God explains to Moses quite explicitly the purpose for his dramatic appearance to Israel on Mount Sinai. That the people may believe. Faith is what God expects from Israel as the proper response to their Sinai experience. We move forward in the story expecting to find Israel's faith. We are quite surprised to discover, however, the exact opposite unbelief and death. In the next major narrative section, the wilderness narrative from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, Numbers 10.11 all the way to Numbers 36.13, the people of Israel do not believe. And Adonai said to Moses, how long will, these, how long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Numbers 14.11 then we are shocked to learn that even Moses and Aaron are not granted access to the promised land because they do not believe. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Numbers 20:12. 20, Israel's lack of faith is so pivotal in the storyline that Moses looks back on the experience and, twels, and tells us twice in Deuteronomy, the final narrative section of the Torah, that Israel did not believe. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe in the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 1.32 And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe in him or obey his voice. Deuteronomy 9.23 The Lord clearly desires a faith response from his people. He acts on their behalf so they will believe. Remarkably, those words, faith and righteousness, are mentioned together only twice in the whole Torah. In Genesis 15 we find faith and consequently we find righteousness. Genesis 15.6. Sadly, in Deuteronomy 9, there is no such faith, Deuteronomy 9.23, and consequently, no righteousness, Deuteronomy 9.4.6. Then there's footnote number 7, which reads, No wonder Paul quotes the first part of Deuteronomy 9.4 in Romans 10.6. Do not say in your heart, when comparing the righteousness based on the law with the righteousness based on faith. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart. Romans 10, 5, 6. By quoting Deuteronomy 9, 4, 
Paul expects his reader to see that Israel's lack of righteousness under the law is the result of their lack of faith. Boom. Let's stop and consider the implications of faith versus no faith in the Torah. Before the giving of the law, there is faith. In Exodus 19.9, at the introduction of the Sinai narrative, it is quite clear that faith is supposed to be Israel's response to God at Mount Sinai. Although we would expect Israel to respond to God in faith once they have received the law at Mount Sinai, i.e. faith under the law, no faith is forthcoming. In spite of Israel's year-long experiences with God at Mount Sinai, Israel does not believe. As a direct result, and in contrast to the believing Abraham, they also do not have righteousness. Deuteronomy 9, 4-6 Therefore, they are not permitted to enter into the Promised Land. Numbers 14, 11, Numbers 20, 12, Deuteronomy 1, 32, and Deuteronomy 9, 23 Sinai, Before and After What does Israel's reception of the law produce if not faith? It is only when we compare Israel's wilderness narrative to Mount Sinai, before giving of the law, with Israel's wilderness narrative from Mount Sinai, under the law, that we find the answer. Consider these two wilderness narratives before and after the law is given, as bookends surrounding the giving of the law. There are numerous parallels between Israel's journey through the wilderness to Mount Sinai and their journey through the wilderness from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. Footnote number 8, which reads, Once again, it's a reference to this John H. Sailhammer, Meaning of the Pentateuch. You can uh, look that book up. I probably butchered the name. John H. Sailhammer, Something like that. With all due respect, good sir. Alright, here are these numerous parallels. Parallel number one, Israel complains after a three-day journey, Exodus 15, 22, Exodus 24, Numbers 10, 33, Numbers 11, 1, and the complaining continues for the remainder of the journey, Exodus 15, 24, Exodus 16, 2, Exodus 7, 8, Exodus 17, 3, Numbers 14, 2, 27, 29, 36, 16, 11, 17, 5, and 10. That is a lot of complaining. Parallel number 2, Israel longs for the food of Egypt. Exodus 16, 3, Numbers 11, 4-5. Number 3, God provides manna and quail. Exodus 16, 4, 26. Numbers 11, 6-35. Parallel number 4, the Sabbath command is violated, Exodus 16.27, Numbers 15.32. 5. Israel quarrels with Moses and asks why he brought them out of Egypt. What an ungrateful bunch. Exodus 17.23, Numbers 20.35 and 13. 6. Israel questions the God who is among them. Wow. Exodus 17.7, Numbers 11.20. Number 7. Israel's complaining occasions God provision of water from the rock. Exodus 17.6, Numbers 20.10-11. Number 8. Israel battles against the Amalekites. Exodus 17.8-16, Numbers 14.43-45. Number 9. The people of Israel become so burdensome for Moses that he must appoint leaders to help him bear the load. Exodus 18.18-22, 18, 
Numbers 11, 14, Numbers 16. While Israel behaves in much the same way before and after the law is given, the consequences of their actions are strikingly different. Number 1. Israel is victorious over the Amalekites before receiving the law at Mount Sinai, but is defeated by them after Israel receives the law. Exodus 17, 13, Numbers 14, 43 to 45. Number 2. Moses does not complain about his burdensome dealings with the Israelites until Jethro points out the problem just prior to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Exodus 18, 18 to 22. As soon as he leaves Mount Sinai, however, when faced with the exact same problem, he asks God to kill him. Numbers 11, 14 to 15. Number 3. On their way to Mount Sinai and just prior to the giving of the law, none of the Israelites are put to death when they sin against God and or against Moses. Many thousands, however, are put to death for the same offenses once they receive the law. For example, A. Violating the Sabbath goes unpunished in Exodus 16. Sabbath violators are put to death, however, after Israel receives the law. Numbers 15.36 B. Israel's longing for the delicacies of Egypt go unpunished before the law. Exodus 16 The Lord strikes down many Israelites with a plague for this same sin after they receive the law. Numbers 11.33 See also 14.37 C. The people claim that it would have been better to die in Egypt before the law, Exodus 16, 2-3, but do not actually get their wish until the law is given, Numbers 14, 2, 21, 23, 32, and 35. D. Grumbling against Moses before the giving of the law occasions no punishment, Exodus 16. After the law is given, however, Grumbling against Moses results in the death of about 15,000 people. Number 16, 1-3, 32-35, 16:41-42, and 49. And yet again, when the people complain against the Lord and Moses, many are struck dead by fiery serpents. Numbers 21, 4-9. Limitations of the Law when we compare the before-the-law picture of Israel with the under-the-law picture of Israel, the implications are quite clear. Thus Paul expresses his understanding of the Torah in his New Testament writings when he articulates that the giving of the law results in divine wrath and death, as in Romans 4.15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans 5.20 See also Romans 7.10, 2 Corinthians 3.6 Moses' own perspective on the giving of the law at Mount Sinai is perfectly consistent with Paul's understanding of the law in his letters. Moses is not presenting righteousness through the law as Israel's key to blessing and the enjoyment of the promised land. As we have seen, he prophesies their disobedience to the law their exile, and the curses of the covenant both in the introduction and conclusion of the Torah. I want to bless you with the gift of a very good land. By the way, you will be just like Adam. You will disobey the law, experience curses, and die in exile. Here is the law. I really hope you do better than I expect you will. Likewise, if Moses were presenting the law as the key to Israel's righteousness, why would he highlight the vital connection between faith and righteousness before the law, and then tell the story of Israel's breakdown of faith and the lack of righteousness once God gave the law? 
This would be akin to God saying, I want to give you the same righteousness I gave Abraham when he believed before I gave the law. By the way, when I gave Israel the law, they did not believe, and consequently I did not consider them righteous. Here's the law. Good luck. Instead, the Torah story leads the reader to question the effectiveness of the law for bringing Israel and the nations into the fullness of the unconditional promises of the Abrahamic covenant. See Genesis 15. Since the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are unconditional, surely Israel's hope to receive them would not depend on obedience to the law whose blessings are conditional, particularly because Moses makes it clear that future disobedience is certain. We have carefully compared the behavior of the Israelites on their way to Mount Sinai before receiving the law with their behavior on their way from Mount Sinai. Having spent an entire year with God at Mount Sinai, footnote number 9, which reads, see Exodus 19.1, Numbers 10, Numbers 10, verse 11. Again, having spent an entire year with God at Mount Sinai, having received the law, the people's behavior does not change. They continue to complain and rebel against God and against his servant Moses. It is in this context that the exasperated Moses looks to a new source rather than the law for the solution to Israel's problem. Moses looks to the giving of God's Spirit. But Moses said to him, Joshua, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his Spirit on them? Numbers 11.29 Moses does not say, Would that all the Lord's people kept the law? Moses' longing that all of Israel would receive God's Spirit is later picked up by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. Joel 2, 28-29, Masoretic Text 3, 1 to 2. Emphasis added. There's a footnote number 10 right there which says, The Torah's storyline clearly anticipates the importance of the giving of God's Spirit in Acts 2. So already we are seeing deep connections between the Torah, the giving of the Torah, and the New Testament. Very interesting. So far we have seen quite clearly that the law cannot be the Torah's ultimate goal. If not the law, then what? Or rather, who? Aha! Here lies the mystery. And we shall continue to witness this unfolding mystery in chapter 3 of Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus, which will be the content for episode 13 of Finding Higher Ground. To my dear listeners from near and afar, both here in the United States and all around the world, believer and non-believer alike, well actually to the non-believer, I hope that you're starting to see that there are deep connections between the two books and none of this can happen by chance. Clearly none of this can come out of absolutely nothing. This is all too much by design and on purpose and deliberate. I ask of you to look deep within and look around you and please realize that there is something greater for you in store. 
this God of mine wants you to experience life to its fullest abundance. This life here on this earth is only the beginning. And if you put your trust in this person, this character, Yeshua, and you really start researching who he really is in seriousness and in depth, you will come to the conclusion that I have. I do hope and pray. I know he's real. He's proven his existence to me way too many times throughout my entire saved life. His spirit touches me on the way to work in ways that I cannot describe, only that I can tell you that I have tears of joy streaming down my face while I worship him. There is no language on this earth that can fully describe the magnificent splendor of his unconditional love for you. I implore you, unbelieving listener, abandon the madness of the world and come into the goodness of the logic of Adonai Elohim. Pick up my challenge, study him, research him, get to know him. In most cases, people who seek him out to disprove him wind up believing in him. Unfortunately, there are those who resist and they deserve our prayers. Abba Father, I come to you in humility and also in boldness, and I ask of you in the name of your Son, Saya Yeshua, Hamashiach Yeshua, that you send your Ruach HaKodesh through this podcast episode, and you reach the ears of the people who need to hear your word. I ask of you to open up their hearts, to soften their hearts, so that they can let you in and show you the life, the abundant life that you have in store for them in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. I will leave you now, dear listeners, until my next episode, episode 13, my bar mitzvah episode, if you will, with the ironic blessing. Yivarchecha Adonai v'yishmerecha, ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yechunecha, isa Adonai panav elecha v'yasem lecha shalom b'shem Yeshua HaMashiach. May Adonai bless you and keep you. May Adonai shine his face upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift his face upon you and give you his peace in the name of Messiah Yeshua. Dear listeners, non-believer and believer, as Messiah Yeshua loves you all, so do I. Peace be upon you and you shall be hearing from me soon. Shalom Alechem Unishtamea Bekarov.